while the rest of us will turn to Luke chapter 11. I didn't know until just a couple weeks ago that No no Shave November was a thing. I didn't. I'd never heard of that before. I came in just the first week unshaven. Gerald's like, oh, No Shave November. And I'm like, No Shave November? He goes, yeah, it's a thing. Okay, I didn't know it was a thing. Fun stuff, fun stuff. Wonderful, beautiful joys we share together. Laughter. Oh, we're so blessed. We're so blessed. Um, As we've progressed to Luke 11, verse 37, we begin to see a side of Jesus now that many who identify themselves as Christian would prefer not to acknowledge, actually. Uh, As I grew up in in really a liberal branch of Lutheranism, statements like these by Jesus were never read on Sunday. Um, and because the national headquarters of that denomination selected the readings every week for everyone, for all churches across uh, the country, I assume that they were never read in any of those churches. But while we were growing up, we were consistently reassured that God is love, He wants us to be happy, that Jesus is our friend, that God wants us all to be nice together, nice to one another. And in a sense, that is all true. But the problem arises when those truths aren't balanced with other truths of God, like He is a just judge who will rule rightly. He's a defender and an advocate of the widow and the orphan. He is a consuming fire, Scripture says, a jealous God. He shares His glory with no one, and Jesus confronts sin and exposes it for what it is. He is the light of the world. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness can't comprehend it. Can't understand it. John 1, verse 4. This is essentially where we left off last week, folks. Jesus is the light of the world. He warned His listeners that they have to receive His light or they would remain in darkness. And in this passage today, Jesus now really begins to point his finger right at the Pharisees. It's very, very direct. He's pointing at the darkness. And his finger projects a warning he gave back in verse 35 that we read last week, but I purposefully delayed and set aside until this week. There Jesus warns, watch out. Watch out, beware, be careful, take heed. Watch out that the light that is in you is not darkness. Now, this doesn't actually suggest that Jesus is saying that the darkness is some kind of light. But it stands to reason that as Jesus commands us to be full of light, there will be multitudes who will claim that they're full of light. All kinds of folks claim to be full of light. You know, which false teacher is going to come to you and claim that they're full of darkness? No, they're going to say that they're full of light. And as Paul warns, even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Certainly there are going to come people who falsely claim they're full of light or that they have the light. And you know what? It it, it just... 
it just kind of hit me this week. That person, it's not usually the drunkard. It's not usually the prostitute. It's not usually the fornicator who's out there saying, you know, I've got the light. They're not usually the one making that claim. But whether it be a religious monk, a cult leader, a sage of, a, of some kind, a celebrity on television promoting a secret that you need to have, usually it's the religionist. Usually it's the religious person who claims they have the light and they want to share it with you. They'll each tell you that they know the way, that they can show you the way. So it shouldn't really take us by surprise that during his earthly ministry, Jesus directed his most scathing remarks at those who thought that they had the light. The religious elite, uh, while he displayed immense levels of grace towards the known sinners, the tax collector, the adulteress, the prostitute, the Gentiles. The Pharisees, well, they thought that they possessed a light. They were exceedingly zealous for the law. They were apparently, were about 6,000 of them at the time of Jesus. They functioned kind of like religious police. They wore a similar uniform, or went around reminding people, you can do this, you can't do that. They claimed an allegiance to Moses, but expanded the law much further than God had ever intended it to go. You see, for Pharisees, the law wasn't specific enough. It wasn't detailed enough for them. So in an endless pursuit of self-made perfection, religious perfection, they exercised a loyalty, not exclusively to Moses and the prophets, but also to oral traditions. These oral traditions, they were eventually formulated into a written code. That is called the Mishnah. You've probably heard of that. That has become basically the, the guidebook for post-temple Judaism, which is which still observed by most religious Jews around the world today, the Mishnah. That's what the oral traditions developed into, a written code that supplemented the law and the prophets. So the Pharisees were, by the arrival of Jesus, by the time that he came, enforcing all kinds of traditions, all kinds of practices that went far beyond anything that was revealed in the scriptures, anything prescribed by God. Every false religion or cult religion either substitutes or adds to what God has spoken, what he has declared in the scriptures, and then they devote strict loyalty to them. The Pharisees considered their traditions a supplemental source of light, if not even a superior source of light to the scriptures. Jesus refers to them the traditions, as darkness. It is darkness. Well, in verse 37, was an unsuspecting Pharisee. He makes the mistake of inviting, inviting Jesus to lunch. It reads, Now when Jesus had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to lunch, to have lunch with him. And he, he went in, that is Jesus, and he reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. 
So th- this clearly wasn't a hygienic issue. That isn't what was the problem here. The text identifies a ceremonial washing, a ceremonial cleansing, a purifying of the hands. But a ceremonial washing of the hands was never prescribed in Moses or the prophets. It's never found that ceremonial washing before every meal in the Bible, Old Testament or New. It was added through oral tradition. Oral tradition. An extra level of purification. An extra, extra level of safety designed to be seen by man. That's what it was. It was designed to be seen by men. A purification that was added to what was known in Scripture. It was added through oral tradition, as I said. It seems as though the Pharisees must have been, this Pharisee must have been new to Jesus. Must have been the first time he had him over for dinner because he was actually surprised that Jesus didn't take part in their tradition. Being surprised at it, He probably didn't know Jesus beforehand. He did not honor their tradition. Instead of honoring, pretty shocking, Jesus begins insulting any and all Pharisees in the room. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. Dinner talk. Clearly, when he's alluding to the cup and the platter, Jesus is making reference to the ritualistic washings that the Pharisees constantly practiced, the cleansings. He's not talking about doing dishes. Washing the outside of the cup is his reference to the external show put on by the Pharisees. Everything they did was for show. The way they dressed, the times and the places that they prayed, the cleansing of their hands. Everything was practiced so that people could observe how devoted they were to their oral tradition. How serious they were about their religion. And consequently, they all got to see just how righteous the Pharisees appeared. How they appeared. In Matthew 23, verse 5, Jesus says, to Pharisees, or about Pharisees, they do all of their deeds, all their deeds, to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries, those are things that hang from the hat, religious looking things. They lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. You see, all of their activities were manipulated. They were orchestrated to be seen so that people could see them and how religious they are. Even the way they dressed was to be noticed that they're very serious about their religion. You know, some people have asked in jest, why I don't wear a clerical collar? Well, there's nowhere in Scripture that Christ or His apostles or the instructions contained in, uh, in the pastoral epistles or the instructions in the Bible that tell a pastor to conspicuously dress so that you appear to stand apart from others. 
that you might appear to be more holy than others. When I pray, I do so with my door closed. It's not to be seen. When I give, I give in secret, as do you. Because generally, the more that people decorate themselves on the outside, the more tassels, the more fringes, the more they want to be noticed on the outside, the darker they remain on the inside. Similar reason that I don't wear a nose ring. Don't want to be noticed. Now, this doesn't suggest that Christians should blend in so much. Just blend in so much that they they disappear into the wallpaper, into the woodwork. But instead, Christ said, let your light shine before men in such a way in such a way that they can see your good works. Not you, but your good works, and then glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's Matthew 5.16. It's your goodness that they should perceive, and that they should see. Because in a sinful world, that, that just remains, folks, so excessively dark, so exceedingly dark, you really don't have to shine that brightly. You don't have to shine that brightly to actually be noticed. You know, there, there is a proper balance. I don't even know if I have figured this out entirely yet. But there is a balance. Um, we dwell in a world, unfortunately, in my opinion, you may differ, we dwell in a world of sh- such shameless self-promotion that good works of charity often give off an aroma of being disingenuous, folks. You know, it just seems anymore that it's impossible for someone to just lend a hand anonymously, to not be seen for what they're doing. Um, If you help an old lady carry groceries to her car, you better have someone taking a video of it so you can capture that moment. And then you can share it. Perhaps you can set up a GoFundMe page. Start your own ministry of helping people to their cars and and gather together all kinds of money. Perhaps you can make yourself CEO. Persons and, and even organizations, churches, tactically broadcasting all that they have done so people can see. All that they can done, have done. Um, they need to realize if that was your purpose you've already received your, your reward in full. But if you're willing to just let your light shine, let your light shine without seeking an audience, the Word of God assures us, reassures us really, that people will see it. They will see it. And the fact is, you don't see a lot of organized ministry promotion in the Bible. You know, today we see a lot of parachurch ministry, other things going on. Um, that stuff that's alongside the church, parallel to the church, they call it parachurch ministry. Um, many, not all, many endlessly promoting all that they have done. I'm not saying that's all prohibited. Some, some are actually quite helpful. But the apostles don't place an emphasis on those things in Scripture for building the church. There are are just a whole lot of look what we do 
type ministries out there. Look what we do. A lot of programs existing in Christian circles. And I'm not fully convinced that letting our light shine suggests that we should be shining a spotlight on ourselves. Do you perceive a subtle difference between the two that I'm trying to illumine? Everything the Pharisees did was to draw attention to themselves. Even when they would give alms, the term alms, folks, is, just indicates gifts that are given to the poor. Uh, alms were commanded in Scripture, by the way. So they, so they were biblical. But even when they'd give alms, Jesus tells us, that they would do so while blowing a trumpet. So, so we can be pretty sure of this. Folks, there is a wrong way to be biblical. Do you follow me? You can be doing something biblical, giving alms, and be doing it in the wrong way. We need to be careful of that. There is much unsubstantiated material about the Pharisees' blowing of trumpets. It's been circulated over the millennia, centuries really, by Bible expositors. Before I read a quote from John Calvin, I want to forewarn you that there exists no historical evidence in the record, biblical record or extra-biblical Judaism, that a literal blowing of trumpets was used in the way described by Calvin. I know we've all likely heard that preached. I'm not going to just knowingly propagate a legend that can't be validated when there's no evidence of it, no matter how brilliant it sounds. But Calvin, about 500 years ago, writes this. Jesus expressly reproves, this is talking to the Pharisees now, expressly reproves a long-established custom in which the desire of fame might not, not only be perceived by the eye, but felt by the hands. In places where streets or roads met, and in public situations where large assemblies were to be held, they distributed alms to the poor. There was evident ostentation in that practice, for they sought crowded places that they might be seen by the multitudes, and not satisfied with this, they even added the sound of trumpets. They pretended, no doubt, that it was a call to the poor, as apologies are never wanting, but it is perfectly ob obvious they were hunting for applause and commendation. I've heard lots of illustrations about trumpets on the corners and everything over the year. Um, now to show Calvin grace, because in numerous, many numerous ways, Calvin has shown me a lot about grace. He was relying on the historical accuracy of the theologians, the writings of the theologians he had available to him in his time. Calvin himself knew that the Bible wasn't specific on this blowing of trumpets. Yet nowadays we can make the mistake of quoting Calvin as if it's Scripture. But in reality, John Calvin knew he wasn't there with Jesus. He was instead, to the best of his ability, relying upon the resources he had at his disposal during his time. But through the historical, though the historical accuracy of Calvin's comment may not be precise, I do believe the spirit of his comment is. Let me explain. 
The fact is, the Pharisees were tooting their own horn. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men, to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor... Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now whether or not the Pharisees blowing trumpets was literal on a street corner everywhere they went, or or whether it's metaphorical when they gave to the poor, we don't have a lot of evidence to know. But they might have been. And with certainty, Jesus confirms that they were striving in whatever way they could to be noticed. They were tooting their own horn. Do Christians and Christian organizations need to be concerned about this today? At least a little bit of cautious about drawing attention to self. Declaring all the good that we do. Sounding a trumpet, whether proverbial or literal. I tell you folks, the advertising and promotional budgets of some organizations would shock you. Are we Christians seeking to shine like a light, or are we seeking the spotlight? Subtle difference there with a great chasm fixed between it, between the two. Charles Swindoll has a plaque hanging above his door of his study that he heeds every time that he walks out of his study. He looks up as he goes out to preach, and the plaque says, What is your motive? What's on the inside? Why are you doing what you're doing? Is it to be seen? I realize it's important for a community to know that a church exists. People need to know what services a church provides. I I get all that. I get all that. But maybe someday the church should just try being the church. No signs, no advertising, no promotional literature, no spotlight. The Pharisees did everything for the purpose of drawing attention to themselves. The outside of the cup, that was really shiny. Polished, shiny. Pressed shirt. Fresh polished shoes, perfectly straight tie. But on the inside, robbery. Wickedness. They looked really religious, but on the inside were full of just dead men's bones. Now, for the sake of equal time, and for the sake of Thai advocates amongst us, can the opposite behavior also be true? Can, can you be religiously superficial in other ways? You know, there are 
folks that will deliberately dress down. Just to make a point of how religiously basic they are. They don't want to look like those religious hypocrites, hypocrites who actually shower before church. They want to stand apart too. This is really getting popular in churches today too. You probably already know that. Grown men wearing skinny jeans. The raggedy cut off shorts. Band leaders got flip flops on. All to make a point that nobody can point to a verse that prohibits the way they dress. So, you know, they, they sport the Jesus tattoo. Maybe they let their hair grow out like they envision Jesus must have. Some Sundays they might even put it up in a man bun, you know. Maybe they have a ring it through their nose. You know, you know that stuff's all great. That stuff's all great. But are you doing that just because you think it looks religious? Is what I would ask them. You know, folks, maybe you're a spitting image of Jeffrey Hunter from King of Kings. Maybe you're a spitting image of Jesus in the movies. But you need to ask yourself, do I just look like Jesus on the outside? Because Jesus said, you foolish ones, did not he who made the outside also make the inside? God knows what's on the inside. Jesus is reminding them the same God who created you, he knows your motive. God knows who enjoys being seen. But he reassures his church in Matthew 6 that we don't need to purposefully orchestrate our righteousness before men in order for him to get noticed. Sometimes we rationalize, you know, that we need to make our presence known, visibly obvious, so that Jesus gets noticed. But it's Jesus who actually tells us to beware of doing such things, of that type of attitude. And when we give... We're told we can do so in secret. And God's kingdom will be just fine, folks. We don't need to ostensibly toot our horn in order for Him to grow His church. What we actually need to do is be the church, folks. Be the church. And when done with a proper motive, not to be seen. Not to impress people, but from a good and honest heart. God reassures us that He will find His way to shine. He will shine. You know, this just makes me think of simple things that God has called every Christian to do. Every Christian to do. Old-fashioned things, like visiting the sick amongst us. Old-fashioned, I know kind of old-fashioned. For he says, as often as you visited one of these sick brethren, a brother or sister of mine, as often as you've done that, you've done it to me. Of course, it's, it's his body. We've talked about that previously. And we think instead, you know, shouldn't we focus our energy and our budgets 
our money, on something that gets a little more exposure than a hospital room visitation, something with a little more bang in the buck. Because we only have so much time. Nobody notices, you know, when the church is confined to a hospital room visiting a sick person or encouraging a friend. How is anybody ever going to see what we're doing? The doctor sees. The nurses see. The therapist sees. The family of that sick person, they hear and they see that Christ has been here and that Jesus loves. It's just being the church. No promotional literature needed, no formal budget, no organizational meetings to figure out how to achieve such a result. That type of ministry doesn't need a committee or need to adopt a snappy name at all. It's just being the church. The church being the church as your light warmly shines in a world that grows steadily darker and cold. Cold. Scripture says also, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, our God and Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Just a couple samples of many. But to visit orphans and widows in their distress. You know, I know that's also kind of old-fashioned. You know, to worry about widows or the fatherless that might be in our midst. You know, and I realize, I understand this, that that now has become the full responsibility of Social Security and Medicare. Wrong. Wrong. And if you actually, you know, make an effort to get to know them, you might discover there remain vulnerable widows, children without a father, people that are handicapped, others who have found that, you know, the government programs haven't met their needs. The government programs haven't shown them love. And unless you first get to know them, they're usually not going to confide. They're not going to, to come and open their heart to you if they've never met you, right? We need to know one another. We need to introduce ourselves to those in our body amongst us. That, that works both ways. You know, younger folks, you need to get over and, and talk to some of the older folks. I know you do. We need to increase that good behavior. Older folks, you need to stick around and meet some of the younger folks too. Some of these events we can get together. We need to know each other to be the body. You can't be the body if you're disconnected. Corinthians says something about that. We're all one body. Christ himself being the head. So we need, we need to take that time to know each other better. We're good. We need to be better. All of us. And as you get to know people, you'll come to know. This is what we find in ministry. Young or old, middle-aged, children, no children. Fatherless, widowed, widower. If you come to know people, 
Everyone's experienced stress. Everybody's hurting. And most of the time, when you go to orphans and widows or the handicapped, I'll add in there, others, most of the time they're not going to ask for anything. Anything at all. And if they do, they aren't going to ask for much. But if you don't ever get over your fear and apprehension of getting to know people so as to be truly used by God and helping others, folks, you're never going to experience the joy of those friendships, the love, the contentment that God has waiting for you. We're missing out on so much. Maybe I shouldn't, but I'm going to close by taking liberty of sharing a story, really as an illustration, that I don't really have permission to, but you know, if I just remain vague enough, on the details to make the point. Uh, I can do that without losing the sediment. Stuff like this, it's just simply too essential for the church not to grasp. We really need to get this. Recently, a widow eh, needed help with a maintenance issue with her home. Maintenance concern with her home. Uh, The repair was actually mandated by her association. She had to do it. She didn't have the resources to do it. She couldn't physically remedy the problem herself. She was given a window of time to make it happen. So ultimately, three healthy young bucks who share a common concern for Christ's church, yet seeking no recognition, they teamed up together spending a morning accomplishing uh, what was for them a very light task. They brought a pickup, a few tools, a small number of inexpensive supplies, and a love for Christ's body. That's all they brought. I wasn't personally involved, which became especially rewarding for me, very honestly, just sitting back and watching the church be the church. The church being the church. No sign on the truck, no Facebook promotions, just a body of Christ shining. Did anyone see? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe a neighbor saw Christ's body caring for one another. uh, Saw how the church loves. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if anybody saw. Jesus says, don't sound a trumpet. Don't practice your righteousness to be seen before men. The important thing is, is that the need was met and the body behaved as the body is told to behave. And God has used it to glorify himself. You know, when you think about it, do you think that that widow, that those three strong young men, think they'll be a little more comfortable going forward, sharing things with one another? Sharing needs with one another in the future. Do you think the mutual concern, all for one for another, has increased through ministry? Obviously it has. Do you think that, that if one of those four, any one of the four, were to go sick into the hospital, to have a need and have to go into a hospital room, do you think that the other three would want to go see that person and meet them and in their distress, visit them in the hospital. 
Do you think any of them have a regret? None, I will guarantee you. And I haven't talked to them. I know there's no regret. Um, Folks, the error of the Pharisees was that they thought religion was some kind of external show. Maybe it was a light show, they thought. Putting on a light show. Jesus says, watch out that your light that is in you is not darkness. It's not darkness. Woe to the light that is darkness. But, but that true light, he came, he shined before men. He did not come for a show, but that so men and women can be transformed from the inside out. The inside that only God can see. That only God can see. What's your motive? What's your motive? I know uh, with that title there, Woe to the light that is darkness. That wasn't very fiery today for a title like that, is it? Ah, Part two next week. We'll try and do a little bit better. Be a little more fiery next week. Got a big passage here. We can't do it all today. If there's anything you just take home with you, it's that, that your, your religion, folks, let it not be on the outside for a show. Let your heart be changed. Let God change your heart to love. And let it shine. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, oh, it's so just wonderful to look at just a little snippet of your word, Lord, and, and how it penetrates the soul. As we think about ourselves and we, we struggle against the flesh, Lord, we all know here, every single one of us, the flesh just loves to be noticed. Lord, we love to polish the outside of the cup. But Lord, thank you that your word reveals that the inside is where it's at. Lord, that the light shining inside of us and through us through us, is where you are most glorified, Lord. So we pray for this church, this church that you love, that you died for and shed your blood. Lord, uh, we pray as we are increasingly and continually drawn to one another, Lord, in love. Lord, love for one another, love for your body. Lord, uh, we pray that it will increase all the more, Lord. Move your spirit. We'd ask that he would um, not only convict the unsaved of sins, Lord, and, and that your, your harvest would be magnified through that, but Lord, even that the Holy Spirit would teach us. Teach us where we have fallen short, Lord, and where we can improve uh, our lives and our ministry that it will be most most useful to you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.